Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Basic Podcast. Today we're going to be doing something a little different. Today I'm going to completely turn over the reins to another podcast, Foamcast by Drs. Lauren Westifer and Jeremy Faust. About a month ago, they were challenged by Dr. Nick Jeans over Twitter to create core content for the very unsexy topic of hepatic emergencies. This topic is so unexciting that it hadn't yet made it onto EM Basic, and Foamcast even called me out on it. To be honest, I had no plans on making an episode on this anytime soon, so I figured if you can't beat them, join them. In all seriousness, Lauren and Jeremy did an excellent episode on hepatic emergencies, reviewing the basics and common clinical scenarios. It's so good that I'm rebroadcasting it on EM Basic with their permission. So have a listen, and if you like what you hear, head over to foamcast.org or find it on iTunes for some solid EM core content topics based on current foam blogs and podcasts. This episode is totally Lauren and Jeremy's work. I haven't edited it at all, and so it's exactly the same as what was published on their website. If you've already heard it, I encourage you to take another listen. It's that good. All right, that's enough for me, except to say that this podcast is represented through user opinions of our defense, the U.S. Army, or the Shawshank EM Residency Program. Now presenting Hepatic Emergencies from Foamcast. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Foamcast. I'm Lauren Westifer. Jeremy, we have a mission today. I accept. And you don't even know what the mission is. That's okay. You've earned my trust by now. So ill-advised, Jeremy. Here we go. Ian Blog and tech rock star Dr. Nick Jeans posted a tweet last week that we simply must respond to. In general, I think the Foamcast mission is to respond to every single tweet ever posted. So let's start with this one. What did he say? Well, he's calling out the foam world on the lack of coverage of bread and butter content. He's got a point there. If he didn't, we would be out of a podcast. And that would be bad news. But let me just read what he said. Quote, really with all the foamed goodness out there in EM, no love for the liver? I suppose it's not as sexy as other topics, right? And then he tagged Ken Milne from the S-Gym. Well, what's wrong with that? There really are not that many podcasts on liver, that's for sure. Very true. Not many at all. There's not even an Ian Basic episode on it. If Steve Carroll hasn't done it, it does not exist. But beyond podcasts, there is really a bunch of stuff out there in the foam world. Okay, but before we get to that, let's just mention that in that tweet, Dr. Jeans posts the slides from a recent non-foam lecture on liver emergencies that he gave. And it's really good stuff. So we're going to do a quick rundown of some of the highlights. The rest you can check out in our show notes at foamcast.org or on Nick's awesome blog. Let's do a quick rundown on some of Dr. Gene's main points and some of the great slides here. So we'll start with a slide that mentions some of the causes of acute liver failure that we pretty much know, viruses, the toxins, and among those, of course, are your Tylenol or acetaminophens. And the one that, just the zebra that everyone loves, is the Amanita mushroom poisoning. There's some other ones like Ischemia, Wilson's, Epstein-Barr virus, varicella, and, of course, toxoplasmosis. Those are the kind of causes that we all know. One of my favorite things was he talks a lot on how to interpret labs in this talk. And one of the big ones is that the INR peaks about a day or a day and a half in acute liver failure. But one of the real key pearls that I took away was that lactate, if it's high, is still bad in these patients. If it's greater than three and a half ever, it's bad. Or if it's greater than three despite resuscitation, that's still bad. And the liver clears lactate, so in cirrhotics, we expect that it takes about three times longer to clear their lactate. That is a lot of threes. So three, despite resuscitation, is bad, and the cirrhotics take three times as long. Okay, another bunch of threes. If the ALT or AST is greater than 300, actually, you can use ALKFOS. You can actually use ALKFOS. Lauren, did you know that? It was actually useful ever? I, I did not, sir. All right, so what you do here is you can actually just send your viral hepatitis panels if you suspect it, but... 
if your ALK FOSS is greater than three times normal, then consider obstruction. There's your pearl. The other one is if the AST is greater than 3,000, that's pretty suggestive of toxic or ischemic injury. But Jeremy, what about that old AST to ALT 2 to 1 ratio for calling out all the alcohol hepatitis? Yeah, that does hold up. If the ALT or the AST is less than 300, you can use that rule. So apply that rule when the transaminases are generally pretty low, and that does play out. Got it. It's really a great slide set, but honestly, in general, slide sets are hard to consume without the audio and video. So as I mentioned, I went along looking for liver foam. That just sounds weird. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. And okay, what'd you come up with? Well, naturally, the Critical Care Compendium over at Laugh in the Fast Lane has a bunch of stuff. Anything recent? Not really. Back in April, there was an episode on the Hospital Medicine Podcast, which I'm sure you listened to on acute liver injury. Um, I don't restrict my foam consumption to just emergency medicine, but it's not quite emergency medicine enough to go into here on Foamcast. But thankfully, the Maryland Critical Care Project put up a post on Kylas Asadis literally the next day. Good timing. I looked at the site. You sent me the link. The pics are pretty much gross. Yeah, don't look at the pictures on the blog while sipping on a milkshake. (laughs) But other than that, it's a really great post, and they go through the epidemiology and prognosis for patients with Kylas Asadis or acidic fluid with triglycerides. I am totally sensing a zebra. I've got a sense for that. Guilty. The number they quote for calisocytes is about 1% of cirrhotics, but this is bad when it is there. Uh, yeah. What's the mortality on that? Oh, uh, really bad. Mortality is averaged about 70%. Worse if the patient has cancer, better if it's secondary to trauma. Uh, trauma? That's a main cause of ascites, the chylus nature? <laughs> well, actually, the causes are pretty varied, but the big one that we actually see is trauma, an iatrogenic trauma. So these are going to be your patients that are post-op from abdominal surgery or less likely, but still occasionally blunt trauma. As usual, there's a host of causes like abdominal malignancies or lymphoma, cirrhosis, or pancreatitis. And this is because it causes compression of the lymph channels or leakage of those pancreatic enzymes, which is bad. Would you like to tell us what the treatment is? Absolutely not. No, treatment is typically surgery. They go in and they fix whatever's leaking or insert a shunt. Okay. Um, Let's check in with Rose and Allie and cover some other hepatic emergencies. Sounds good. It's nice to check in with our old friends. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like a sense of familiarity with them now. Maybe we should be on a first name basis with them. You mean like calling them Juder? I was thinking more like Pedith. Hmm, I'll think it over. That does kind of have a ring to it. In the meantime, let's talk about spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. SPP. It's infection of the ascites fluid. That happens spontaneously. SPP. It's a serious deal, and Rosinali will define it for you as a white blood cell count greater than 1,000 or the magic number 250 neutrophils. Jeremy, one of the first things I hear people say after a tap is, hmm, looks clear to me. Well, honestly, it always looks like Mountain Dew to me. But this eyeball method that so many people look at is unreliable. I guess unless it's chylus fluid. I think even we'd be able to differentiate between milk and Mountain Dew. So we don't have to wait for the culture to treat. But greater than 250 neutrophils or greater than 1,000 WBCs, then we treat. All right, check this out. From Rosen's, you can use a urine dip for SBP. So a positive result on a urine reagent strip testing for Luke esterase has a high degree of correlation with a clinically significant elevation of neutrophil cell count. That is so baller. 
You're really excited about that, aren't you, Jeremy? I am so a urine dip for ascites. I love it. I know. I know. So sit down. Um, I just want to let you know that I saw the excitement in your in your voice there. And it turns out that the study that Rosen quotes is from 2003. And all the studies that looked at this in the early 2000s showed pretty good sensitivities. But more recently, they've been looking at it. And the sensitivity is more like 46%. So if you're okay sending over half your patients home with SBP, then it may be okay. But I probably won't be going. You're just killing my buzz here. You're ruining my entire day. I know. I know. I'm sorry about that. It's it's my purpose in life that I have to... I have to stay one step ahead of you in some way. Right, so man. it's a cool trick. Maybe one day it'll be better. But right now, I would maybe shy away from it. Not dipping the ascites. Okay. Uh, back to ascites fluid, the, the, the tried and true. A pH of less than 7.34 or a pH gradient between the arterial blood and the ascites fluid of more than 0.10 is an actual reliable early indicator of SBP. Make sure to draw the blood gas at the same time that you draw the ascites fluid. What about coags before tapping, Jeremy? Yeah, it's a great point. Always check a PT and INR before doing a paracentesis. Give fresh frozen plasma if a significant coagulopathy is identified. So what's the cutoff? Okay, there's no great answer for that, and we all play the game, would you tap that? And frankly, unless it's super high, most people will just do a tap if the patient looks sick. That's kind of true. I did just tap a guy with an INR of 3 and platelets of 60, so I tapped that. Yep, I've heard people look at an INR of 5 and say I'd tap that. But ASAP says greater than 2 is a contraindication. So be careful on the boards and in life and in the courtroom. I guess it's a risk-benefit ratio. Mm-hmm. And those clinical features of SBP that we think about, abdominal tenderness, guarding, and fever, those really aren't as good as we think. So the people that are more likely to get it are those with ascites, previous episodes of SBP, and then the really sick cirrhotics, the one with the high bilies and the low platelets. And what about treatment? SBP is often a gram-negative rod. E. coli, for the most part, is a classic. So a third-generation cephalosporin, such as ceftraxone or cefotaxime, seem to be the agents of choice. And cefotaxime really is preferred by liver. I don't know why they're obsessed, but they just love it. If a high-risk patient with ascites is identified in your ED and contraindications are not there, just go ahead and prophylax them. Go ahead and start it. Yeah, I think that there's like a number needed to treat of 22 for the uh, upper GI bleed patients for prevention of SBP. So if you have an upper GI bleed patient, go ahead and prophylax them um, if they're a cirrhotic for SBP as well, even though it's like based on one RCT, that's a good idea as well. But let's move on to hepatic encephalopathy. So as liver disease worsens, patients can get encephalopathic. Anything from apathy or personality changes to asterixis, obtundation, even coma. What you're doing right there is you're just glossing over the four grades of hepatic encephalopathy. I am. And my guess is that you want to enlighten us. Yes, I do. So uh, grade one is general apathy, which I have. So, so far, that's not good. Uh, Two is lethargy, drowsiness, and variable orientation and asterixis. And except for the asterixis, sometimes I have those too. So I'm concerned. Yeah, that's an ICU rotation. Yeah. So, So, but here's the thing. Asterixis type two. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Okay. uh, Grade three has hyperreflexia and extensor plantar reflexes. And grade four is coma, which is, you know, really tough to spot that one. I miss that one often. All right. Reflexes? Who does this? 
Yeah, hyperreflexia and the extensor plantar reflexes in the grade 3 hepatic encephalopathy. I mean, the reason no one actually does this is that basically the other ones are tough to miss. Grade 4 is a coma, not tough. And grade 2, the patients are pretty with it. So grade 3, they're like in between. But the subtlety is that a grade 2 patient can have like super lethargy and they have the asterixis. So you might think that like a grade 2 is worse than they actually are. And you might actually admit them when really they just needed to be kind of sat on in the ED and you observe them and you treat them a little bit. And then in the right situations, you could actually send them home. So actually the reflexes might be really important, especially if you're on the fence and liver is not around. Overall, hepatic encephalopathy grades matter, I guess, because one and two can go home if they have a good home situation. And that's from uh, Tent Nally herself. And whereas grades three and four need admission and are more likely to maybe buy themselves an intubation. Correct. Now, Lauren, let's just talk about ammonia. Do we use ammonia to guide our thinking here? Um, well, ammonia is quite often high and everyone gets an ammonia level and then waits around to see what it is, but it does not correlate with the degree of encephalopathy. We all form ammonia in the GI tract, but the liver is typically able to convert ammonia to urea. And these patients, they can't really do it. So their ammonia builds up and inevitably gets high. Is there any role for trending ammonia? Is that a clever move to sort of like figure out what you want to do? It is not. A low one doesn't tell you that, that they aren't sick and a high one can lead to early diagnostic closure and they can go up and down without clinical change. If a patient with liver disease comes in altered, you really got to work them up before pinning it all on a hepatic encephalopathy. I mean, come on, even if their ammonia is super high? Even if it's 90 million. Yes, even then, Jeremy. That's a lot. That's that's a high ammonia. Yes, even then, Jeremy, even if it's 90,000. So these patients are prone to all kinds of electrolyte disturbances. They're prone to infections like SBP that we just talked about. They can get uremic and they also have GI bleeds. So really work them over and figure out why they're encephalopathic. And then management includes correction of underlying electrolyte abnormalities, strict protein restriction, and administration of lactulose, rifaximin, or neomycin. All right, Westerfer, one more topic. Drug-induced liver disease. Rosen's Chapter 90, Tintin Alley Chapter 83. Up to 5% of hospital admissions for jaundice are related to drug-induced liver disease. And drug-induced liver disease is probably the most common reason why a drug is withdrawn from the U.S. market. There's also an age component. The older a patient gets, the more likely they are to have a toxicity or a failure related to a drug. Yeah, the only exceptions to that really are valproic acid and aspirin, which typically cause more hepatic damage in children. We're not going to waste your time reading the entire list of drugs that can cause liver failure, but there are some common ones that we all pretty much know. Like acetaminophen. We all know about this. It's one of the most talked about hepatotoxins. We're all pretty familiar with it, so we're going to skip over it. But looking at this list, the most surprising one for me was Augmentin, or amoxicillin clavulonic. I heard it on that podcast, Hospital Medicine, back in April, and I doubted it. But even Tintinale lists it. And on the NIH website, they list it as the most common cause of clinically apparent drug-induced acute liver injury, both in the United States and Europe. So I got to thinking, and with all the kids out there on high-dose Augmentin and questionably-dosed acetaminophen, I'm pretty impressed that I haven't seen it. But then there are also some other interesting drugs like bupropion and amiodarone, which a lot of patients are on. Yeah, the list really is interesting, and take a look. But it has two main varieties that I want to point out. One is cytotoxic, and the other is cholestatic. The cytotoxic ones, you pretty much know, the methotrexate, the chemo, the things that just, you know, kill cells. 
but I was really interested by the cholestatic ones because this is just like a very specific liver thing. So the ones that jumped out were haloperidol, verapamil, and carbamazepine as being uh, cholestatic in their liver toxicity. And what's kind of cool here is that you can use a bile acid sequestering agent such as cholestyramine to provide some relief. So for a patient with cholestasis and maybe significant pruritus, you might think of that and then go there. And management of these is like all talks, which is you discontinue the offending agent and you take really good care of your patients with supportive measures. And if an allergic mechanism is suspected or if it's autoimmune, corticosteroids can help. Drug-induced liver disease, though, is often benign, and fulminant hepatic failure and new cirrhosis is rare but possible. Bottom line pearls. Think of SBP in any patient with ascites, even if their abdomen is not crazy tender. Tap the belly and give a third-generation cephalosporin if they have greater than 250 neutrophils or just a high pretest probability. And hepatic encephalopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion in the emergency department. Think of the things that may be exacerbating this, like a GI bleed or infection. And elevated ammonia isn't really going to help you because it does not correlate with their degree of encephalopathy. And then the grading that Jeremy hounded me about, grades one and two can go home in many cases and don't let the asterisks throw you. Grade two, asterisks. Grade three has hyperreflexia and grade four, well, that's coma. Drugs can cause liver disease and it's not just the acetaminophen. Some of our favorites like haloperidol, augmentin, that's amoxicillin, clavulanate, sulfas, aspirin, bupropion, those two can cause acute liver injury. Take a great history, a great one, get that list. And stop any drugs that you can stop, if possible. Aha. So, Jeremy, it is time for our Rosh review questions, and I have a good one for you. You made me learn all of those hepatic encephalopathy criteria, so now I'm going to test you on them. Here we go. Are you ready? I was born ready for this exact question. Born ready for this question. I think you wrote it. All right. A 54-year-old man is brought into the emergency department for altered mental status. He's markedly disoriented with confused speech and is unable to follow any commands. A musty odor is noticed because you sniff all of your patients greatly, and his medical history is positive for IV drug use. Which grade of hepatic encephalopathy does this patient have? Grade 1, grade 2, grade 3, grade 4, or grade 5? What's grade 5? I don't know. I just made it up. All right, fine. Um, Markedly disoriented and confused speech and unable to follow any commands. So it's two or it's three. The question is, am I really like going with three or not? And, uh, you know, the reason it's three is just the degree of how out of it the guy is. Unable to follow any commands. That's not lethargy. That is like out of it. So I'd go with grade three. And you are totally right. I think one of the other cues here is that as you stressed, asterixis is present in grade two. So I think if they mention that, then it is probably they're shooting for grade two. This patient is going to get admitted almost 100% of the time. Absolutely. That's our show. Check out foamcast.org for show notes, links, and more Rosh Review questions. And check us out on Twitter at Foam Podcast, where Jeremy has set the bar high and said that we will respond to everything. Thanks for listening to Foamcast, the only podcast where we call EM legends by their first names, even though we barely know them. Barely know them? I've never met them. That's because they're not on Twitter. Not yet, that is. Okay, y'all, thanks for listening and for not foaming it alone. Laters. Hey, guys, it's Jeremy. 
We forgot the MELD score. That's the model end-stage liver disease, which gives you a three-month mortality prognosis for your hepatic patients. Calculate it using your app of choice, but you're going to need labs, INR, T-Billy, serum creatinine, and sodium, and to know if they're on hemodialysis more than twice a week. If you have lab values from a previous visit, liver consultants will be very impressed that you have the previous and current MELD score. Okay, that's all. Foamcast is free, open access, medical education. The opinions expressed are our own and do not reflect our employers. Thanks for listening. Thank you.